Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homey. I am your host, and I am once again honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. The Business Creators Radio Show comes to you from everywhere. We're a laptop lifestyle podcast. We broadcast from our sumptuous studio here in our Las Vegas balcony. We've come to you from cigar shops, coffee shops, parks. We've come to you from the back seat of a an Uber in motion once. We have had guests dial in from the rainforest of Columbia during a downpour and also from a hangar in Tel Aviv where you could hear the IDF jets flying over as we had our conversation. When you have the conversations that inspire you, the mastermind-level dialogues that can change your life in an unexpected way, where do they happen? In the classroom? Rarely. They happen when you're out and about, when you're in these types of places. Sometimes you hear a little ambient noise in the background, the chatter of another conversation, the chirping of a bird, the driving-by noise of a vehicle. Who knows? But we take you there, and we show you the path. So find a pad of paper and two pens and have them ready to capture the aha moments that may naturally arise as you hear what we're going to cover today. With that, let's get started. What we're going to do in this episode is rethinking how to appeal to consumers using cognitive science. Now, I love this level of thinking when it comes to marketing and in particular branding, which is what a big piece of this conversation today is going to be about. And to help us navigate this, we have on board Sandeep Dale. And let me tell you a little bit about him. Sandeep is a seasoned marketing and strategy leader at the consulting firm Sorrenti Marketing Group. He serves as a counselor to C-suite executives and board members at global Fortune 500 companies and has helped clients build blockbuster brands and markets spanning the European Union, Latin America, Asia, and the United States. He's co-authored articles in Marketing Management, McKinsey Quarterly and Strategy Plus Business, and his new book is Branding Between the Ears, Using Cognitive Science to Build Lasting Consumer Connections, which I believe it just came out. And you can discover more at his website. It's uh, Sandeep Dayal, S-A-N-D-E-P-D-A-Y-A-L dot com. And with that, Sandeep, come on in. The weather's fine. Well, there, Adam. I'm happy to be here. Truly excited. Well, I got to tell you this. I just read off your official bio like I do on all these episodes. And candidly, I'm not sure I'm worthy to be in your presence. And this is my show. So uh, before we get into this cognitive science stuff and branding, what we like to do here is 
again, I read off your official bio, but tell us a bit about your journey and what's motivated you at a visceral or personal level and brought you to where you are today serving business creators from the intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Sure, sure. What a great question to open with. And, um, you know, maybe in the spirit of what your show does, which is, you know, it makes people think. And it is that kind of thinking and self-reflection that led me to write this book. And it is, you know, I've been working in the branding space for more than 20 years now with some of the greatest brands in the world. I've been privileged to do that. But what uh, what had happened in the past was that we would sort of do all this work. We had all these great ideas and techniques that we used, right. but we didn't feel like sharing it with anybody because, you know, it was like our company's stuff, you know, and uh-huh. we didn't want to reveal it to the whole world. But I think over the last few years, particularly, we've had time to reflect. And, you know, and what I found or what I learned from that reflection is that when you have knowledge of certain things, then you have almost a duty to share it with others, right? I mean, what good is knowledge that isn't shared? And um, that is what led us to finally in in our company to say, okay, you know what? These are things that we should get out there so that we can engage with people, with a lot more people around a dialogue around what these brands are and how we respond and what is our relationship with brands. Right. And I I think think that's very... Interesting. And what I want to do here is just sort of dive in because I know you have a lot of stuff you want to share with us. So first of all, you've shared that there's something wrong with the old way of doing branding. And you ask, is it not simply a matter of figuring out what's different about your brand and putting that in a message? So if you could expand upon that, what have we been doing wrong up until now? Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, branding is something in the simplest terms, that's something that we all understand, which is you know, if you're going out to market and you're going to have a product there, then you want to understand how is your product different from somebody else's product and then take that difference and sort of package it and do some kind of a tagline, put it into your brand positioning. And historically, that is what branding has been all about. Um, Now, what has happened and what has changed in our thinking? Uh, By the way, that kind of thinking is pretty logical, if you will. And what has changed in that thinking is that over the last, I would say, 15 years, there's been a lot of research that has been done into behavioral sciences, into cognitive psychology, into social anthropology. And the convergence of that thinking really is around understanding how our brains work. Because, you know, we can imagine how people choose, but really, how does our brain work? Because ultimately, the choices are made in our brain. So with all of the developments that that have been happening in those sciences, we're learning that our brain actually works in a very different way. It doesn't quite go in that particular, you know, deliberative way where it sort of thinks, oh, what are the differences? Oh, how do I feel about those differences? And then go make a buy. Things just Uh happen. 95% of the choices, Adam, that we make are made instinctively without any thought at all, so to speak. So that is what led me to say, wait a minute, if 95% of the time we don't think the way that brand marketers think that we think, then shouldn't we be thinking about branding itself um, in a new way? And that is what led me to this book and this journey. Well, my first, I guess, you know, when a lot of people hear branding, they think of logos and colors. And I've been arguing for years Every branding expert that we've spoken with, and we've had many on our show over the years, tell us that 
that's only a small piece of it. So yeah. what do you say to the folks who say, oh, branding, does that mean I get a logo done? Yeah, yeah, right. No, branding is branding is strategy. Branding is positioning. And then what happens is that once you know very clearly what your brand is going to be about, once you've articulated that in a, in a very clear fashion, and by the way, it takes a lot of work to get there, then whether it's your logo, whether it's your packaging, whether it's your billboards, whether it's your television commercials, it is just reflect a reflection of that strategy and a piece of it and not necessarily the entirety of it. So and in, in the book, we sort of separate that out into two parts. So one part is around brand strategy. And the second part is around brand execution and the taglines and logos and all those things are really about execution. It's not so much about strategy. Strategy is fundamentally around what is the DNA of your brand? What is the soul of your brand and what have you? And you have to really understand that very clearly before you can get to that second part. Yeah. You know, when I, again, going back to this whole thing, well, brands, I mean, logo and colors, we've argued many times that, that stuff is not even permanent. Right. I right. have, I remember a story and I, I, I love this person dearly, but it's a story I have to tell. We had a client whose launch of this is back when I used to have a web development firm. So this story's over 10 years old at this point, but it's still pertinent today as it was then. Their website launch got held up by a month over a shade of purple. See, <laughs> they had gone through the whole thing of, working with a branding agency to determine the best colors to use and the best fonts to use. Now, yes, I agree that fonts, colors, and subtleties within logos do have a psychological importance. Color speaks to mood. It speaks to energy. It speaks to what we emanate and receive. Fonts, whether they're serif or sans serif, size, uh, width, thickness, there are psychological factors there. And then within logos, you can look up any number of articles on this about the Easter eggs within articles. Like for example, the FedEx logo, if you look carefully, there are those two arrows in it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah. at the same time, at the same time, this project got held up because they didn't believe that my firm understood the color purple is what it came down to essentially. Yes, we had their branding swatch from their branding and marketing agency, and they wanted their primary color of their website to be the certain shade of purple. Okay, you gave us the hex code. We'll use that purple. We don't have a dog in this hunt. Uh, you, you have your reasons for believing that color of purple is a way to go. I actually like how you thought that out. Right. But they right. just didn't believe that we had used that color purple. I sent screenshots. I sent detailed explanations. I filmed Camtasia videos of myself pulling up their WordPress theme configuration settings in addition to going through the browser and accessing the code behind their CSS sheet to show it was that hex code. <laughs> right, they, right. They, they went so far as to hire another firm whose specific job was to tell us what we were doing wrong, mean, meaning my firm. They actually hired somebody to tell me what I was doing wrong. Right, right. And that firm went back to them and said, they're using your hex code, that's your purple. It took a month for this person to hear that they needed to change the settings on their monitor. Right, right. That's how, that's how they're stuck they were on the exact shade of purple. 
we were using it, but uh, something about their particular monitor, maybe the monitor itself was older, maybe the brightness or what have you. I know for a fact when I have my laptop sitting next to my desktop that sometimes things don't look exactly the same on those two monitors. Mm-hmm. But I bring up the story, and again, I say that with 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 love uh, because that's just an example of some of the bastardization we see out there around branding. And candidly, as long as that color purple was approximate, it wouldn't have made that big a deal. I mean, there's a big difference between violet and royal purple. Uh, There's certainly a difference between purple and burgundy. But if you're off by one digit in the hex code, you're probably not exactly going to lose or gain market share either way. Right, right. Yeah. So I I wanted to surface that so that people really understand what branding isn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think um, let's unpack that a little bit. So, you know, when we when we get into this whole notion of cognitive sciences, one of the conclusions is, you know, when you start asking the question, hey, what's in the brain, right? What is all this information that is sitting in the brain? So what happens is that there's actually only two kinds of experience, uh, two kinds of information that is in your brain. One is um, you know, some information around all the experiences that you've had in the past in your lifetime, right? In some form or fashion, it's not stored as an exact record, by the way. Yeah. But some learnings and some wisdom out of that, you know, whatever rules you you formed from living your life over the last several years, those rules and that wisdom is is part of your is part of your um, is part of the information in the brain. And we call that experiences that you've had in the past. The second piece of it, and by the way, I use the term we often because a lot of the stuff that's presented in my book is stuff that we had discovered in my company, uh, work, a lot of us working together. The second piece that is um, in the book and in the brain, uh, so to speak, is beyond experiences, your fantasies. But at the, those are the really the two things that reside in your brain. And what happens is that when the brain when it perceives anything, you know, so we use our five senses, if you will, to you know see something, smell something, taste something, whatever, and that creates certain impressions. So it's it's all of those things are then reconciled against what are those experiences and that wisdom that we have from the past. And if those things make sense to us because they are consistent with our own knowledge, with our wisdom, then those brands start naturally appealing to us. And, and that is what is going on, you know, so when you talk about a logo, when you talk about a color, when you talk about a shape, these are all part of your experiences, right? So when you go and when you walk into a Starbucks, your whole, all your senses are on. There is a certain, you know, coffee aroma there. There is that logo, the bright, you know, the bright green logo. And um, there are people are dressed in a particular way and everything. So everything is all, is very carefully choreographed when you walk, in, walk into a into a Starbucks experience. And then what happens as a result is that you don't actually have to walk in to one of those stores. You could see it from, you know, quite a distance away and you would know it's a Starbucks store. And as soon as you saw it, you could almost smell the aroma, although the aroma is not there because that experience is all stored in your brain. So you're right to point out that we need to, brands need to think about the brand experience in a very holistic way because every little thing, whether it's the color, whether it's the shape, whether it's the taste, Uh whether it's the smell, 
everything gets recorded into your brain in the form of an experience. And that's why experiential brand as a whole, thinking these days around experiential brands, but all brands are experiential in that sense. And you create those experiences by choreographing them very carefully, carefully against people's expectations from their experiences and their expectations from their fantasies. So everything that you said earlier about the purple color, in fact, is very important and makes sense. Well, yeah, yeah, certainly. And the, the lesson behind that story is to... Look at your damn monitor settings, basically. This got mm-hmm. held up by a month, uh, and this person actually paid somebody else to try and tell me that I didn't know how to do my job after I had already told the person, check your monitor settings. Right, right. And in, fa- in fact, this outside firm that they hired to teach me a thing or two went back to this client and said, how much do you want to, how much do you want to charge a or excuse me, how much do you want us to charge you to tell you he's right and you need to check your monitor settings? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I yeah. So so I bring that up as an example of of how getting stuck on one piece of it. And if we want to merge that with your message, it yeah. actually flows pretty well. Is what is the whole experience? What part of the experience is that purple? What are people supposed to feel? What yeah. are they supposed to visually sense? When they see the brand of that business, because other because right. otherwise somebody was playing with play doh and mixed a few different flavors and got that particular shade of purple, stamped right. a hex code on it, and there we go. What does it right. mean? Right. And in I, mean, I mean, I mean, yeah. When I see that, when I see that color purple, why is that particular shade supposed to make me think of your company? What is am I going to feel in my heart? What am I going to see in my eyes? What what am I going to smell, taste, feel? That's yeah. the experiential brand, as I understand it. Do I have that right? That is exactly right. And in fact, these days when we design brand experiences, I tell my clients that you've got to write a brand brief for every single sense that people yeah. have, right? So you got to mm-hmm. you got to think through taste, you got to think through smell and everything. So in I live in Chicago, and we have the street Michigan Avenue where all the fashions, you know, it's kind of the fashion street. And I have heard of it. And, all that stuff. and so if you walk on that and, you know, you can spot you know, uh, the Burberry store, for example, from half a mile away, you can see it. And, you know, the whole store is uh, is wrapped around in like these tartan stripes, which are the, uh, uh, the hallmark of the Burberry brand. Those things are there. You walk into the store, the colors that they use on the wall, the um, they, uh, you know, even pipe in a special smell in there and so on. So all of those things are very carefully choreographed because they are specific to that brand. But that is where the first part of the branding, which is, you know, what is your strategy? What is that impression you're trying to create? Who is it that you're trying to appeal? All of those things become very significant. Right. And as mentioned, those things have to be consistent with what are positive experiences for you? What are your values? What is your, uh, you know, what are the kinds of uh, purposes that you believe in? All those things come into play. So the brand is as I was saying earlier, it's a lot bigger than just thinking about your product differences. Yeah, that's 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 certainly the case. And I was going to say earlier, this when I first became aware of this level of thinking when it comes to branding, this is 20 years ago, I had this conversation with somebody. I was speaking with somebody who I knew, and he was a, a consultant who traveled around the world on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And he said that 
you can go to any country in the world that has a McDonald's and you know, when you walk into that McDonald's, you're going to get the same crappy Big Mac. Yeah. <laughs> because they're consistent about it. And I know in some places in the world, uh, it may not be beef. For example, um, India is one place that comes to mind where they sure. may not necessarily have beef in the burgers because cows are considered sacred. And there also right. may be areas where they simply just don't have cows. So they may use another type of meat. So you may want to be aware of that. But the, the, even with that being the case, yes, they optimize it. So that Big Mac is going to taste the same no matter where you get it. Yes, yes. And of course, it, uh, that is the consistency is a part of it, but a big part of the brand for McDonald's, for Coke and some of these iconic brands, it's just the fact that they represent that Americana, right? So yeah. when, you, when you walk into those, you, you might be in Thailand and you see a McDonald's store, you know, you might just wander in there just to feel like you were back home, right? Because yeah. the brand itself, you're, you're not really home, right? You're still in Thailand, but you walk in there because that's what is encompassed around that brand. The uh, the other example that's, um, that, you know, that's kind of interesting, uh, there are a couple of different ones, but one of the things that sort of got me thinking about these things was a campaign that was done almost 15 years back by Unilever for its Dove Soap. And okay. what they did was that they called this campaign Real Beauty. But what they found when they did a lot of market research as they were trying to figure out how to position body wash and soap was that a lot of women felt angst about their own bodies when they saw these super thin, almost anorexic models on all the, all the advertisements, right? You would look yeah. at those things. And you, if you were a woman, you'd look at those things and say, you know what, I'm never going to be like that, right? And that created stress and emotional anxiety in you. So they discovered that this was very common. And they started the Real Beauty campaign in which what they did was they did these billboards all around the country in which they put more real women, if you will, right? So yes. some of the women were a little heavier. Some of the women were, you know, dark or dusky. Some women were white. Some women were... Um, you know, Hispanic, you know, so you had yeah. a whole whole range. Some women were older. So these were, but the common element in all of those women was that they were real women, the kinds of women that could be, you know, your friends, your sisters, your peers at work and so on. And they called it the real beauty campaign. But the real interesting thing about that campaign was that it, these billboards had all these women on them, uh -huh. but they didn't have, they didn't have the soap. And they didn't say anything about the soap at all. And still, the Dove soap became one of the leading soaps, not just in the U.S., but all around the world with that essentially that same type of campaign all around. So this right. is kind of goes back to that point, Adam, that I was making, which is if you just think of your product differentiation alone, that is a very limiting way to think about the brand. If you look at this Dove example, what you find is that they never even talked about their product. They never said it's a more creamy soap or it's going to make your skin soft or anything. They didn't say any of those things. Yeah. You just put these billboards and in somewhere in the corner, it would just say Dove. That's all. We spoke, yeah, we spoke with somebody recently on this show and they touched upon the importance of empathy when it comes to messaging and branding. You got it. And it's you kind of, it. and, and, I, and I'm thinking at some point I may do a blog post for my own site where I take my conversation with you, my conversation with that other person and a couple of my other thoughts, because this all kind of do dovetails together. <laughs> Dovetail, yes. we're talking about dove. So, <laughs> I mean, the fact, I mean, the fact is, um, if I'm curious about the ingredients of dove soap, because I want to make sure they didn't use products from animals. 
I yeah. can look that up on your website, or I can just go in a store yeah. where they sell Dove soap. And if I see and if I see cow milk on there, I'm just not going to buy it. That's fine. But yeah. if that's not my primary driver, for a lot of folks, soap is just something that makes them feel good. It may it may it may have a certain scent to it. It may have a certain lather to it. But what it but the, the common thread here with all this is it comes down to how it makes them feel. Most people have a particular favorite soap. They have a particular favorite shampoo. And their reasons, their truth for making that choice are their reasons and their truth. So what I'm hearing the Dove went after and Unilever, who owns that, is the idea of I, – I was picking up themes like inclusion, self-confidence, mm-hmm. being naturally centered in your own authenticity. So if these yeah. are values that motivate you, it doesn't really matter one half of a rat's ass what's in the damn soap. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was a very novel thing in the whole marketing space because marketing until then had been all around product differences. But you have you have no idea how much you're speaking the language of the book. So there is actually a section in this book uh-huh. which is called Brands with Empathy. And the wonderful thing about that and you saying it is that if you go to a typical branding book and there are hundreds of them, you will, you will not find that particular phrase in those books. Yeah. And it is so important. Brands with empathy are a thing and they're a real important thing if you're a marketer today. Let me give you um, another example and get your reactions to that. Another example that I use in my book where I draw, uh, where I talk about what I call brands with values. Now, brands with values are a little different from brands with empathy. Brands with empathy are brands where, as you rightly pointed out, the marketer is saying, I understand how you feel. Now, brands with values are are brands where the marketer is saying that I know you have certain values and I share those values, right? So if you look at, uh, for example, uh, Ben & Jerry's ice cream, right? Yeah. And Ben & Jerry's is a very controversial brand. Some people like it, some people hate it and what have you. But you know, we're not going there. We're talking about the marketing aspect of it. Ben and Jerry's, again, doesn't talk about their ice cream, right? They don't go around saying, oh, my ice cream tastes better or it's creamier or what have you, right? They just have Mm -hmm. certain causes that they've picked, you know, whether that's uh, voting rights, whether that's, uh, you know, um, justice, uh, social justice and what have you. They have a number of these causes that they've wrapped around their products. And therefore, you know, not everybody necessarily eats a Ben and Jerry's, but the people that do, they have a very loyal following of people that, you know, are just Ben and Jerry ice cream consumers. And again, it's one of those brands, and there are many other brands that do these types of things, where they have wrapped their brand around a certain set of values, and that gives them a loyal following. This may be tangential, but I want to put this in front of you anyway. And the other thing about the business creators radio show that our listeners know is I'm not afraid to go into topics. So I'm going to phrase, I'm going to phrase this as delicately as I can and be as happy <laughs> about it as I can is um, there's something to me about caressing a woman's legs. It just does it for me. I'm mm-hmm. going to come out and say it now mm-hmm. in the real world, women have stubble on their legs. 
Mm-hmm. There, I mean, uh, there, there's this expectation of beauty that it's going to be perfectly smooth all the time. And we have these visions that uh, women shave their legs every single day to have them perfectly smooth in case they ever get touched or want to put stockings on or something like that. And I happen to know from how long it takes me to shave my head that there's, unless a woman has a lot of time on her hand, she does not shave her legs every day. Mm-hmm. So I'll notice that there's a bit of stubble on the calves. Now, one woman immediately got all apologetic, like, oh, oh, my God. Oh, that's so embarrassing. I'm so sorry. And I said, I didn't say I didn't like it. And then another one, I made the same comment. Oh, you've got some stubble on your calves. And she said, do you like it? Mm-hmm. So it's a matter of how people process data and align it with their own truth. Right, right, and, that, and 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 truth like beauty is in the eye of the beholder. That's one of the themes of my book, Groundhog Day is an event, not a business strategy. So, do you see that that coming in anywhere? I think you do, and I'd like to get your thoughts on that. How the person's own truth and how they perceive truth and beauty through their own eyes as the beholder can impact the power of a brand. Yeah, and I think that's a very complicated topic, but. Maybe I'll make a few comments about it. So firstly, yeah. in, in marketing, uh, you know, you are never trying to get 100% uh, of the population, right? And that's what the yes. whole customer segmentation piece of, uh, is about. You know, you you know who your customers are and you make sure that you stay true to them. So, you know, there will be women that are, are you know, very interested in taking care of their legs, for example, yep. in this in this instance, and there are other women, you know, who couldn't give you know two hoots about it, right? Yep. And they they are who they are, and there isn't a right answer. But those are two different. If you're a marketer, you're saying those are two different segments, right? Yes. And and in fact, the the segment of women that don't give two hoots about it could be a very interesting segment to follow, right? Because the, yeah. They might feel like, you know, all the marketers and all the brands are going up after segment one, which is women that want to, uh, you know, spend a lot of time on themselves in that particular way to make themselves beautiful to men or to other women or to whoever, right, right. or for themselves. Right. But there might be other women that just want to express their freedom and their attitude or so on by saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, these things don't matter to me. There are other things that are more important, Right. And you could, you could be a marketer that is saying, okay, I'm going to tap into that angst. Or you could be the marketer A, where you go after the other women. So I think those things are, are, uh, are all very interesting. If you go back, Adam, if you go back to the time when uh, Victoria's Secret yes. right, became a huge brand. Yes. Before that, before that, before Victoria's Secret, um, if you if you looked at women's uh, you know underclothes and so on, these were all very functional products. You know, if you looked at a bra, it was a very functional product around support, around comfort, and this and this, right? But Victoria's Secret came in and said, "Oh no, it's not just a functional product. It's something that is about celebrating your sexiness, right?" Yeah. So, Bras and underclothes and all of these things of women you were, were typically stocked at the back of a store in sort of, you know, these very ordinary boxes. So you'd have to go to the back of a big box store and then, you know, uh-huh. get at the end of it and then some ask somebody and they would, you know, drag these things out of somewhere. But Victoria's Secret, you know, brought it right to the front of the store. They made their whole store about celebrating women's sexiness. And, uh-huh. and it wasn't for, you know, it wasn't necessarily for men. It was about women having the right and the and their own choice 
to celebrate their own sexiness, right? And th- because they did that, they actually found a very loyal following among women, and um, they um, uh, they became uh, the big brand that they did. Until later, when they deviated from that mission and went down just as fast as they had come up. So I think uh, you know these are complex things, and as you can imagine, as you can see. They are all of these aspects are very have very little to do with product differentiation. They have everything to do with each person's reality, with how the brain actually processes information and sort of you know aligns it with those that multitude of thoughts that are in people's minds. Yeah. All right. So we covered a lot of things that we. Uh, had planned on so far. We got into brands with empathy. We spoke a little bit about values. I want to shift gears just for a moment here. Now, most people argue that given the number of brands that are out there, the clutter of messages, consumer attention spans are shorter, and broad mess excuse me, brand messaging needs to be short and sweet. Now, you say that consumer attention spans are not getting shorter. Now, I'm looking at neuroscientific data that indicates that they are and you're saying it's different and you probably have data of your own so tell us about that sure sure and this is a you know so this is one of the myths of marketing which where people say oh you know there's hyper competition and therefore attention spans are are getting shorter and shorter so you know if i'm a marketer what am i supposed to do oh well you write a tagline that is really short and just you know slam it in five seconds but Adam, if you were, you know, online and you were, you know, this ad comes in only for five seconds and you happen to sneeze and close your eyes, then that ad is gone, right? Right. What did you see, right? And you didn't even have time to focus and engage on this thing. So it's, it's I think, a bit of a misnomer. What you have to consider, and, you know, when you talk just as people and you get away from all the science and so on, you know, we know that we have conscious thoughts and we have subconscious thoughts. And what I argue in the book is that our subconscious attention spans spans are a lot longer than we think, right? And so there are a few things to think about here. So remember when you started the show here, you were talking about aha moments, right? And now think about that for a second. You know, why do aha moments happen, right? This is when you've been sort of, you know, thinking about some problem or something that, you know, you're trying to get an idea around. And for days and days, you are sort of flummoxed. And then one day you're standing there in the shower and then it just hits you. The answer just hits you, right? Everybody has gone through those aha moments where suddenly an answer just comes. And now you sort of ask yourself the question, why does that happen? Right? Why is it the case that certain things will just, just become very obvious after five days? but they weren't obvious at that instant. And you weren't in those interim five days, you weren't necessarily thinking about that problem at all. And then just one day that answer just pops. And that is really because our subconscious attention spans are actually much longer than we think, sometimes stretching over days and years, that all of these things that we are wrestling with, they sort of go to our subconscious processing and they keep getting processed there somewhere, even without us being aware of it. That's the whole point of being sub, being subconscious. And, and then that information comes. And so 
in practice, through our own experiences, through our own acknowledgement of aha moments, we know that our attention, that our subconscious attention spans are much longer than we think. So um, that's one, one interesting side of the story. The other interesting side of the story, and that there are many different angles. This is a question that you know I have a whole chapter on. But the other interesting side of the story is that our brains often just um, work by assumption, which is that you know when you're looking at things, you kind of know what they're supposed to look like, so you kind of just imagine that they're looking the same way. Yeah. And as a result, what happens is that when brands do things which are kind of what you expect them to do, you actually don't pay any attention to them. They can have a, you know, three minute ad play there and you won't notice any anything about it because it's doing stuff that you expect it to do, right? What you notice and what you pay attention to are things that are a little surprise to you. So it's not that attention spans are getting, getting uh, shorter. It's more that marketers have to be smarter about how their brands get noticed. And they get noticed when you surprise people, when you do something different. And I'm using the language of English, but there is a lot of technical language. You can find papers on this type of thing. Yeah. But this whole strategy of surprise and delight works. So aha moments are very real. Surprise and delight is very real. And that's how you get people's attention. Or those are some of the ways in which that you have to think about when you're getting people's attention. Yeah. So we've also covered, and I want to make sure that we have this point dealt with. I know we're going in a very, very fluid way here. Uh, one of the things you wanted me to ask you is uh, how brands should think about becoming experiential brands. And I think we've touched on that. And we've also touched a bit on sensory branding. So what are the similarities, differences, and commonalities between those two terms, experiment, experiential and sensory? Right, right. So sensory is, is a subset of experience. You know, the experience is the big enchilada. But there are, um, there's a lot of research that is done uh, by psychologists and uh, on, you know, what really constitutes an experience. And we've been touching on these topics uh, through this conversation. Um, but one of the things that uh, Kahneman uh, uh, Daniel Kahneman, who is, uh, who's a famous psychologist, he's won a Nobel Prize and all of that stuff. But one of the things he talks about is the peak end rule. And what he found is that when you look at an overall experience, so, you know, think about, you know, you going on a vacation and so on, you know, let's say you went on a vacation five years back and now you start to think about, well, you know, what do I remember about that? So Kahneman so, you know, sort of breaks up this whole thing into your experiencing self and your uh, remembering self. So experiencing, of course, you experience the whole vacation, but the remembering self is around what do you really remember about that vacation? So he answered, he looked at that question and through some series of experiments and thinking, he answered that question. And he said that in any experience, the things that you really remember are, you know, the climax of that experience, which is the peak and how the experience ended. Okay. So um, those two things then define the whole experience and everything else in between matters less. Now there are various caveats to this thing, but just think about that. The peak matters and the ending matters and everything else in between uh, is, is not as important. And let me give you right. an example that one, one example that 
we are all familiar with, and this is more around tactics because this gets into the, how do you activate a brand? How do you execute a brand? But, you know, when you go to a restaurant, you will notice that um, some um, waiters or waitresses will come to you. And at the end, when they're presenting the bill to you, there will be a smiley face on it. And there will be a thank you, you know, thank you, Adam, or something like that. Yeah. On. And when they've done experiments and actually studied this, if you take waiters that have delivered a receipt without anything written on it versus one with a smiley face, one versus one with a thank you uh, and your name written on it, but which they can get, by the way, because your name is on the credit card, right? So yeah. when they do that, the tips are anywhere from 14 to 20% higher. So these types of things, you know, a little receipt like that can create an experience and think about Kahneman's rules around the peak and the end, because the receipt is how your meal ends, your meal experience is ending there, right? So, and the other thing that's in a meal is that that's the highlight is the special of the day, right? So often the waiters will come in and say, hey, what do you want? Do you want the special of the day or do you want something else? But whatever it is, the main meal that you had, a smart waiter is going to come somewhere during that meal and ask you how that how that main dish that you ordered was, right? Because that is likely the star of the meal. And they want to make sure that that particular piece of the experience is reinforced in your mind. And again, when people have studied it, asking that question makes the difference in you feeling that your overall meal experience was really good. And uh -huh. it translates physically, it translates into higher tips. So those two little things, um, Waiters have discovered on their own. They didn't need Kahneman to tell them that they were doing. They were doing yeah. that long before Kahneman discovered that. And um, you know that's how it is. You know, people do these things instinctively. You know, I'll tell you. What, I'll tell you what jumped out at me. There's this one restaurant that I um, used to go to when I lived in Pittsburgh, and it was actually part of a chain. And they this and what would happen is your server would come up to you, and they would just <clears throat> start making suggestions off the menu, whether you asked for it or not. Yeah. And I found it so highly annoying. Right. Right. I, right. I, I mean, if I was in a, a couple of times, I was in a really bad mood. And particularly uh -huh. if after all this suggestive stuff that after I gave my actual order, they managed to mess it up. I would just like, like shut them up with your <laughs> yeah. stupid suggestive sales. And, and when I used to, when I was in college, I worked at a Wendy's and, uh, yes. and I, I worked the drive through sometimes and other people would work the drive through as well. And we are supposed to ask over and over again, do you want cheese on that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, after about the fourth or fifth time, I, I, be, I, you ask the same person at the drive through speaker, that question, you start to get it. You start to get responses like, goodness gracious. Did I say I wanted cheese on it? <laughs> so, right, it's, so, right. so that, so that idea of, you know, so that form of suggestive sales, sales, can sometimes be annoying and it yes. feels like patronization or imposition. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're it's right. Like, it's mean, like, it's like, it's like you're trying to get the extra five cents out of it. Now what I would do when I worked at drive through is I would listen for something like, yeah. okay, if they ordered the, if they were the big bacon classic with the extra biggie fries and the super size Coke, and they ordered those three things separately, I would just ring it up as a supersized combo meal yeah which ended up saving the person buying it like 14 cents sure and helped us with our metrics 
because we were getting measured on percentage of upsells, even if technically it cost us a few cents. That was the one metric they were focused on, upsell, upsell, upsell. But I also found if I told the customer that I had done that, sometimes they'd be appreciative, like, oh, you're looking out for me. And sometimes they would say, did I ask you that? I said, I want a big bacon classic, a super biggie fry, and an extra large Coke. Why do you have to mess with my order? Like, hey, okay, I'll put it back. <laughs> so I learned so I learned to do that without telling them anything because as far as the experience, mm-hmm. you're gonna look in the bag and make sure they see a big bacon classic, uh an, an extra biggie fry, and a supersized coke. Yeah, if those yeah. three things are there, they're not gonna scrutinize the receipt too closely. Yeah. So I think um, and you know, let's unpack that also a little bit. Yeah. Um so in psychology, in consumer psychology, there is something that is around authenticity, right? Transparency and authenticity, that is a big thing. So when you were giving that example of people sometimes asking these questions very mechanically, uh-huh. you know, you as a consumer don't react well to them because you know that they don't give a shit, right? I mean, they're just they're just asking these questions and they're just, you know, they couldn't care less kind of thing. So there is that bit of how do you make person's experience authentic and genuine Uh so that's one thing that is very important um the um the other thing where you know you have to sort of sense your consumers and you have to understand um for the consumer that likes making their own choices there is something called the choice supportive bias and it's a very, very interesting bias what it says is that People don't uh, choose what they prefer, but they prefer what they choose. Let me, they say, let me, let me say that. Let me say it out loud so I repeat yeah. back to you. They don't choose what they prefer, but they prefer what they choose. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So, the, so the first part of it, they don't choose what they're. You know, so marketing basically makes you think that you know if you can tell people, you know, why they should prefer your product, then they'll choose it. Right. But that's where you get all these anti-reactions around, hey, you're trying to you know, manipulate me and this and that. Yeah. And people. But the second part of it that people prefer what they choose, which is that if I let you, Adam, choose your own main dish. Right. Uh-huh. And then I go and compliment you about it that, hey, that's a great choice that is going to go down so well because. People like to be, you know, people like to reinforce their own choices. And over time, they get get to be, they prefer the choices. So, you know, if you buy a car, it's very rare that you're going to be saying, oh, it's a crappy car I bought. You know, yeah. most of the time, you're going to just love your car. You're going to think it's the best car, you know, and this is the best decision you make. Because it's, you could, because it was your choice and you start to prefer what you choose. And there's, you know, there's some wisdom behind it, right? I mean, if you were buying things and second guessing yourself, you were making choices and second guessing yourself all the time, then you would be a very unhappy person, which is why we are all wired to have what is called the choice supportive bias, which says that we tend to prefer the things we tend to prefer the choices that we've already made. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. And and the reason I brought up those examples of upselling from before that, yes, to me, are just kind of can actually slam into somebody's either confirmation bias or their preferences or what have you is to compare it to your version where you compliment them on an excellent choice or you make sure that the main part of their meal is something that really stands out and you've delivered nicely on that. 
what mm. I what I do is I have a few restaurants that I that I like. Uh, I, I I go exploring, uh, and I I like to check out the culinary scene, uh, particularly the vegan culinary scene here in Las Vegas. Uh, but I there are a few places I stop by pretty regularly, and it's to the point where as soon as they walk in the door, they already have an idea of what I want. Yeah, yeah, uh, and that and that, and that's actually the way I like it. The way yeah. I create that is I establish a pattern of either ordering the same thing every time because I because I will then just say, okay, well, if I'm in the mood for this, I'll go to this restaurant. And if I'm mo- in the mood for that, I'll go to that restaurant. If I'm in the mood for this other, I'll go to this other restaurant. So that's how I do it. And, yeah. I, and, I, and I do it in such a way where I modify the order slightly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it always involves removing something from it that's easy for them to not include. Yeah, yeah. So they so they know me as that guy that always orders this, but take off this. And this that's, is a and good. that's it. I mean, and then there's one one restaurant where I have two favorite uh, dishes, so to speak. And mo- th- by this point, most of the servers come up to me and they say, "All right, so say are we going with option A or option B?" Right. Right. Yeah. You know, now the other thing I should point out when I was talking about the peak end rule in the brand experience, the peak can also be negative, right? Because you can have a negative experience, which is if, you know, somebody comes in and for whatever reason messes up your experience, right? Then you always remember that and you forget all the other things that happen and you remember that uh, the mess up that happened with you. So, uh-huh. That is why it is very important. And you can imagine with everything that you were describing about yourself. Now, imagine if you're a restaurant chain, if you're Starbucks and so on, right? If you're an airline and so on, they have to deal with a million people who are all different from you, right? And so to be able to architect these experiences, a lot of thought has to go in there. And a lot of a deep understanding of psychology is what can help you there. Yeah. You know, I will remember for the rest of my life that I went to a Tommy Bahama restaurant once and yeah. I had to ask for a menu four times and the server threw it at me. Uh-huh. While in the meantime, he was peacocking for all the females who were sitting at the table next to yeah. me. Like uh, I was asking for this menu and he had already gotten their orders and then finally said, here's your menu and threw it at me. And when I tried to complain, it fell on deaf ears. So I took it. So I took it to Yelp. And then rather than address my concern on Yelp, they stalked me online, found out, found friends of mine who also frequented Tommy Bahama and went to my friends and said, if Adam doesn't take his Yelp review down, you will not be welcome here anymore. Wow. Wow. I'll remember that for the rest of my life. You will. You For the rest will. of my life. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but, 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 but at the same time, I've had 30,000 positive experiences in restaurants. And the ones that stand out for me are when the server went off script because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they, they say, can I get you started with some drinks today uh what's your what uh what's your what, what would you like to have uh do you want us to bring out the appetizer separately uh but is that meal good uh are you having dessert would you like something to go is the check okay that's all well and good everybody yeah. says that but when they go off script yeah I can see the faces I can hear the words even as you and I are having this conversation uh, one of these restaurants I go to for some reason the waitress always calls me sweetie. I don't know if she has a crush on me or she's just a flirt. Doesn't matter. But I can yeah. see her face and, and the way she'll actually move over to the side of the table rather than being directly across from me when she yeah. takes the order. And yeah. uh, I imagine she, I my first guess is she uh, knows a bit about neuroscience herself 
and recognizes that creating a sense of familiarity increases her gratuities, which mm -hmm. is smart business. I also can see the one who on a regular basis, when I see him will ask me about what is that topic that he and I discuss? See, I'm drawing a blank, but I can think of it any other. Oh yeah. My cats. He asks me about my cats all the time. Yeah. Yeah. That jumps out at me. So let me, so this was the second part of what I was talking about earlier. Remember I was talking about, you've got to surprise people. Yeah. That's the same thing as what you're describing about off script, right? Yeah. So if people, you can have a very consistent level of service, you know, because a lot of times people think that delivering a brand experience is only about consistency. But what happens with consistency is you're just doing what people expect. And when you just keep doing what people are, are expecting, they sort of glaze over it. You know, they don't notice anything, anything spectacular about it. So that off script piece is, is an important piece. And let me give you an example, uh, which actually I describe in the book also, but let me give, give this to you from my experience. So this is, this goes back a few years, you know, I was taking a flight to, uh, uh, to Zurich uh, on Swiss Air and happened to be in business class at that time. And, you know, they serve the wine and all that stuff. So, you know, and my habit is that, you know, when they serve the wine, I like wine and, I ask them to say, they'll come back and say, okay, you know, what are, you know, here are the wine choices, which one do you want? And I usually say, you know, give me a little of each of these and I'm going to try them. And so, you know, I did that. I, you know, tried three different wines and I picked the one that was, uh, you know, that appealed to me. It was a Spanish wine. And then, and I really liked the wine. And so what happened was that later on when the flight attendant came and said, Hey, would you like something from the duty-free shop? I said to her that, you know what, I don't want anything from the duty-free shop, but I'd like to buy a bottle of that wine because it was really good. And I'm going to be meeting my wife in Zurich and I'd enjoy that. So she said, no problem, sir. Now, now just, you know, just pause and think about this. You know, this is not something that's on the, uh, you know, duty-free options. That's something that you can buy. But I just say to her, hey, I'd like a bottle of that if I can buy one, right? And uh -huh. so... A little later, she walks over to me and, you know, she has the duty-free bag. There's the bottle of wine in it. And she says, here it is, sir. And I give her my credit card that here, you know, is my card. And she said, no, no, thank you, sir. It's with our compliments, right? So it's that kind of off-script thing that you're talking about, right? Now, this was a seven-hour flight, I think, to uh -huh. Zurich, from Chicago to Zurich, seven hours or maybe close to eight hours. And, you know, they obviously had a nice meal and all of this and so on. But I don't remember anything else about that flight. I just remember that one instance, right? Out of an eight hours of sitting in that flight, in that seat, trapped right there, I don't remember anything else about that. I uh -huh. only remember that one particular instance. And that has defined what my brand experience of Swiss Air is. And that's kind of what this thing is. That is, you know, it's sort of mixing those two things. One is, what is that climax of the experience? And something else here is, what is the surprise and delight element that you're going to put into your brand experience, which will make people loyal to you and make it memorable for them? Right, precisely. So we're actually near the top of the hour here. So we kind of have to wrap up here. But what I want to do is I want to make sure that for our listeners who may be leaning in or tuning in and ready to discover a new level of branding and how to appeal to consumers using cognitive science. Now, you, Sandeep, are the author of a book called Branding Between the Ears, Using Cognitive Science to Build Lasting Consumer Connections. And I can tell you that 
I'm going to be picking up that book and adding it to my adding it to my reading list. And I know that when I go to your website at www.sandeepdayall.com, I can see at least as of they were having this conversation, the ability to purchase that book on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and perhaps other places as well, right there on your website. So what else can people expect from you when they reach out to you? And how do you serve business creators specifically? So uh, we have, of course, I'm, I'm the managing director for the Serenity Marketing Group. So we yep. do, uh, we provide consulting services. We've been behind uh, the development of some of the best known brands in the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because of client confidentiality, I can't always say which ones, but right. we've been behind many of those. We, um, I'm also often a corporate, uh, like a speaker at corporate events when people have big meetings and they want to yes. learn something new. They want to talk about some, Sign me something up. that's yeah. going to make them think. Then, um, and then I go and, you know, we'll do some uh, presentations, if you will. And at other times, we, would, we may do like a two-day training workshop for people that have uh, companies. But I think at the end of the day, uh, for most people, buying the book, which is available online everywhere, by the way, uh, not just in the US, but if you are one of some of your listeners happen to be in Europe or something, or in Asia, this book is available uh, through places like Amazon and all of those different countries. But uh, there's a lot of stuff just in the book where I think a reader can just, uh, I advise people to just read a chapter at a time, and do kind of what you were doing, which is to sort of read that chapter and sort of Think about how that fits in with your experiences, with your brands, and how would you apply it to your brands? And, and just go through it because every chapter in the book has been written to have significant new knowledge and at the end of the day, make you think about things that you know or may not know differently. Right. I'm with you. So again, I'll say your website is www.sandeepdayall.com. And I encourage everybody to visit that, check out the book. And Sandy, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and believe me in education. Adam, this was a lot of fun for me. Anytime. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.